Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. She Could Fly has already earned some wonderful praise. G. Willow Wilson called it full of unexpected pleasures, masterful, joyful, poignant, a must-read. And Aaron Paul wrote, She Could Fly is a modern-day masterpiece. It's heartbreakingly beautiful and honest to its core. Christopher Cantwell is an executive producer, co-creator, and showrunner of the highly acclaimed AMC series Halt and Catch Fire, which is set within the early days of the computing revolution. He holds a BFA in writing for the screen and television from the USC School of Cinematic Arts, and most recently directed his first feature, The Parts You Lose. He currently lives in Claremont, California, with his wife Elizabeth, sons Cooper and Leo, and dog Albie. Nick Daze is an author, technologist, and entrepreneur. He is the founder and CEO of Block HQ Inc., a software company developing AI for the apartment rental industry. He co-hosts the podcast Robert, uh, Robert, Robot F. Kennedy, and is the author of the children's book Roger Nick's President at Six. He holds a BA in creative writing from USC, as well as a BA in theater from the School of Dramatic Arts, also at USC. He currently lives in Manhattan Beach, California, with his wife Kendra, son Henry, and daughter Nell. We are so fortunate to have them with us this evening. Please give them a warm welcome. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, I just want to start off with a little bit of fandom. Um, I've uh, known Chris for a long, long time and have respected and admired um, his, uh, his television uh, writing, his improvisation, his short film work, uh, and um, this is, uh, She Could Fly is uh, very different and very lovely and very intimate um, and very scary. Um, all, and I mean all of that in a really good way. So I just wanted to say uh, thank you for putting it into the world. Thank you. Before we start. Thanks for um, being here. So I wanted to start not talking about the plot or the characters right away. Um, the framework I used for thinking about this was my journey as a kid with comic books. And I want to ask you about your journey uh, as a kid and as an adult with comic books. Like, what do they mean to you? What were some early comic books that you were into as a kid who bought them for you, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think, uh, it's funny, I don't know why I have this memory, but the first comic book that I remember getting was I went on a camping trip with my dad, who's right there, uh, and we went to Tyler, Texas. I grew up in Texas, and we stopped at a, you know, convenience store or something like that, and um, I ended up buying a comic book, or my dad bought me a comic book. I was very young. And it was uh, Marvel Tales featuring Spider-Man. And Spider-Man fought two Latin American brothers who turned into werewolves. And I remember reading that on the camping trip. And I guess that was it, man. I was off. That's all I needed. Um, yeah. And then from there, I think I started wanting to read more. And so there were comic book shops where I grew up. And my mom, who's also right there, would take me to the comic book store and I'd pick up my, my comics in their, in their box every week. 
were they um I, I growing up knew some kids that uh were encouraged in their comic book habit and some kids usually with like very severe catholic parents that uh comic books were very very um not okay in their households where where did you guys fall in the camp well i had very severe catholic parents okay but they were very supportive of my comic book habit uh we would go to Big Bob's Cards and Comics or Lone Star Comics. And I, I had a pull list, which is, you know, you sign up at the front and say, these are the issues I want, and they'll file those into your boxes before they put them on the rack so that you make sure you have the issues you want. And so I was able to do that when I was pretty young. And um, I did that pretty much all through middle school. Um, and I, you know, to the point where I had a giant footlocker of comic books in my room. Was there a, a specific um, kind of a set of characters or story arcs that you that you are very close to your heart? Were you more particular to science fictiony or horror comic strips, um, humoristic or ultra violent ones? Like what 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 was your jam? I think you know it's funny. I will say that um, my parents were very supportive of my comic book habit, but maybe too supportive, where they would not open them. In terms of what the content was inside, it'd be yeah. like, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead and get that. And then, you know, I would go home and read them and be pretty uh, blown away by some of the things I was seeing inside. Uh, and uh, so at first it was superhero stuff. I think that's like a really easy entryway into comic books. And then um, from there it was more adventure stories. There were things like Bone was a comic book that came out in the 90s that I really loved. Um, and then if you went darker, things like The Mask, which preceded the crazy movie with Jim Carrey, you know, that was something that I picked up and was probably too young for, but was pretty blown away by. Um, and, and yeah, I think it really, I started to find more of the, the indie stuff on the outside. I didn't go too deep into that, not until I was maybe older when I came out here. That was probably the second comic book phase I had was when I came to college. Yeah. Um, do you still have like a collection? Yes, I do. Is it with you or is it your parents' house? It's actually at my house. Yeah. It was one of the few things that my parents kept from my childhood room. Most of that stuff was gone. Um, but I got a footlocker sent out to um, L.A. with a really good friend of mine when he moved out here. This was years ago. And it had all of my comic books in them. And so I've, I've just kind of moved them back and forth between houses. you know. And now we have two kids and I'm married. And only recently, with all of this stuff did I decide to finally go through and actually organize it. So I organized it with my son, Cooper, who was not allowed to open most of the issues. I was going to ask, is Cooper into, have you like shared any with him yet? He's excited to go to comic book stores, but then when he looks at the racks, he gets pretty quiet and freaked out just because, even though it's not, it's not terrifying stuff on the covers, I think he's just really overwhelmed. So he'll go to the, there's like a, a kid section of the, the comic book store in Claremont. And so he goes over there and it's like Ninja Turtles and... Hilda and like all of these other things that are great for kids. That's fantastic. Um, I, I also want to ask you a little bit about um, how uh, writing for the format of a comic book or graphic novel, um, which I think is a newer experience for you, um, compares and contrasts with the other mediums or media that you've written for. Um, in what ways is it uh, liberating and freeing? In what ways is it constricting? Like what, what are your... What are your high-level takes? I really like it because it's fast. Um, at least to me, it feels faster just because you can get it down and tell the story very quickly. Um, I like how simple it is, where it's a single image. And I try not to do a lot of dialogue, just period, in stuff. 
Um, you know, in TV or film, you have the liberty, theoretically, to write a lot. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to have a partner who will pull me back from that. Uh, and so I imagine, I imagine him sitting with me when I'm writing comic books where it's like, consider cutting. Uh, <laughs> and so I will, I will go through a lot of the comic book dialogue and really try to reduce it to um, very few sentences, you know, the least amount of words per sentence. And it, the kind of the rule of thumb that I've learned is that most of the time you can fit three bubbles in a panel. And so if you can get it back and forth, just a little quick volley, then um, that's, if you can get that going, then you're, you're set. But more than that, it gets, it gets wordy. I'm going to catch myself getting a little philosophical here. Um, <laughs> Please but, don't. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> no, uh, something that I've, uh, something that was accidental for me as a kid was that I was often, um, I often received comic strips from adults that didn't know any better, and it would, also, it would be like, issue number four in an arc that I had no context for. Um, but in a way, the format lends itself well to just diving in uh, into the middle of these characters' uh, actions and kind of running with it. Um, and that's what the characters feel like um, in She Could Fly. Um, I, I mean, one really notable example is Kido, the grandmother, or Gamma, um, uh, very early on in the first issue, comes back uh, after seven years away. Um, can you talk about w what the inspiration for that was and, um, and if there's anything, uh, anything more to that back? I, I want to ask you so many stories about, about Keto's uh, backstory. No, I, I, Questions yeah, about I think backstory? that this, was, this comic, even though it has you know, flying technology and a lot of weird stuff in it, I think that you know, my grandmother came to live with us when uh, I was about Luna's age. And she lived uh, in Chicago for her whole life almost. You know, she grew up in Germany and came, and came to uh, America in the 50s. And uh, um, my experience of my grandmother was living alone because my grandfather passed away when I was about two. And uh, so I just have no memories of him. Um, and so she lived alone for a long time. And then uh, she had to have, you know, she became ill uh, in her health, you know, not like super late in life, but like, you know, around the time that you might get ill, like on the early side. And so she had to have open heart surgery, these things when I was in seventh grade, and then she ended up coming to live with us. So her whole life, it feels like I had two different grandmothers, you know what I mean? Where I had one who was that woman who was living alone in Chicago and couldn't drive, but would walk to the grocery store, do all these things. And then I had a, a, a different grandmother who lived with us for uh, four years or so um, before she passed away. So it was, and it was very sudden, I think, for our family. It felt that way, at least. Um, where it felt like a, a very big interruption. Um, even though she was sick for a while and we had to go up there for the surgeries when it was, you know, the selling of the house and her moving in with us, it seemed to happen pretty quick. Um, so that felt like where I drew a lot of keto from. Yeah. Was that. So uh, there are a lot of great, very rich, very complex characters in these uh, in these issues, um, but I really want to talk a lot about the the interplay between Luna and Keto. They seem like mirror images of one another. Um, I'm going to veer away from any spoilers for those of you that haven't read it yet, um, but to give a little bit of context in case you haven't, um, Luna is a young teenage girl um, that is dealing with some uh, mental health uh, uh, issues um, 
and uh, her grandmother um, comes back after a long stay in Japan, and um, and so much of this is about Luna's mental state and yeah. what she's going through, yeah. uh, what she's going through in her inner life and her outer life, mm -hmm. and yet for all the frenetic mental energy that Luna has, um, Kido is an empty vessel almost, or, mm -hmm. or is uh, pursuing uh, a spiritual or mental state of being an empty vessel. Um, how, uh, that was more of a comment than a question really. Uh, talk to me about the um, kind of interplay of those characters um, and about what in your life kind of spills into them uh, as they relate to one another and as they are as Sure, I mean, well one, I went through a lot of the similar, I mean, I went through a lot of the exact similar things that Luna went through when I was actually a little bit younger than she was. Started much younger and I think it, we imply that it, uh, it starts younger for her as well but she's just kind of dealing with it at that point. Um, and around the time of my grandmother's sickness and things like that was probably when it was the strongest. Um, and yet, my grandmother had no idea, right? My grandmother had a thick German accent and we had a, a great relationship, but it was very much one born when I was a kid, you know, and she was younger as well. Um, so we were close because we lived together, but also not really, you know what I mean? I was a teenager, so I was at school and I got a car and I was driving and she was at home and she was watching Oprah. You know, she was there when I would come in the door and, you know, I'd see her and we'd have dinner together and we'd have breakfast on the weekends, but um, yeah, that, that, it, you feel like extraordinarily connected to someone and yet you kind of feel like they're a stranger in your house and you feel like a stranger to them where you can't really relate to them in certain ways that you used to when you were a kid. Um, you know, Keto is, uh, you know, she's been pursuing this Zen Buddhist kind of path, which is something I found to help with some of these, uh, OCD things that I struggled with, but... I thought it was interesting to play it off of someone who might be suffering um, the beginnings of dementia, right? Because if you're trying to really eliminate yourself, you know, Alzheimer's is pretty good at that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a great aunt who I, I really looked to as a, a grandmother as well, and she was brilliant um, and spoke multiple languages, but for the last 90 years of her life, she just really didn't know who she was, right? So it's, it's weird to look at a goal of obliterating yourself, and yet that can happen to you medically and how do we think about it? You know, it just becomes these, the overlap between those two things become interesting to me. So it's like she's getting what she wants but not in the way that she probably was trying to. You are so, um, so forthcoming about, uh, especially in the epilogues or author's notes um, at the end of issues one and four, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and there's a new one in this, I think, yeah. Oh, I yeah. can't wait to read it. Um, there's, uh, you're so forthcoming about your ongoing um, journey, mm -hmm. um, uh, becoming yourself, uh, managing yourself, um, learning uh, how to be. Um, you use a phrase, I, I didn't write it down, but I, um, so I'm sorry if I can't get it exactly, but um, these things never get fixed. They get dialed up and dialed down. Mm -hmm. um, so I normally wouldn't ask, but since you wrote about it in the author's notes, um, Luna has, uh, I believe she in the story has, or it's suggested she has pure o OCD. Yeah. And that's something that you've spoken openly about. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us a little bit about uh, that journey and about... Um, well, it's not great, <laughs> I would say. I can imagine. Uh, it's not a great one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say that the difference between the 
me writing those author notes, and you've known me a long time, I think I was very different about a lot of things, especially in my head when we were in college together. Um, kind of coming to reconcile with those things, I think has been a big journey. It wasn't really until, I don't know, two and a half years ago that I finally started to open up about some of these things with therapists and family and, you know, my wife. Uh, it was very difficult. Um, you know, I remember in college, um, you know, the teachers would always be like, you got to write about what you know and, you know, you should write about yourself and bring, and I was like, fuck that. You know what I mean? I was like, I want to write about space. You know, like, I want to write about, who cares? And, and uh, I just never wanted to reflect. And I think in, in doing so, and I, I learned some of that in Halt and Catch Fire, and obviously that, that show brings in a lot of different people's experiences, but um, finding the real visceral parts of things just translates well, at least in uh, writing, and you, when people respond to it in a way that as a writer you want them to respond to it, which is, hey, you see me, right? And that is a, a good feeling. Um, and uh, with this, this was the first time I've ever even really spoken aloud about any of this stuff to anybody outside friends and family. It was something I was deeply ashamed of for most of my life. And to turn around and then um, say, hey, anybody, like, guy over there at the, you know, the science section of the bookstore, come check out this story of how I was almost hospitalized. You know, like, that feels so 180 from where I was and how I trained myself to be about these things. Um, so that was, it was, it's been a weird journey just because it feels so intensely private. All this comic book stuff we talked about at the beginning, right? You know, going through all that stuff the entire time, you know, it's coming in waves, you know, and crests and, and troughs. Of, of these experiences that no one else knows about, right? And then, and then finally, where they get so severe at a certain point that I'm like, <laughs> somebody help, right? Yeah. And uh, that didn't happen until I was 35. And so the feeling of being helped felt so good that I wanted to put it down on paper in some way and, and kind of look back and go, hey, this is kind of what it was like. Now, I didn't see anybody flying in the air and there was no, like, violent assault, you know, like in my basement. But, like... Um, sometimes it felt like that, right? And and the the violence in the book is not just. I try I try not to make it gratuitous. I tried to make it. What was important for me and the artist was to make it worse than anything Luna could imagine, and she could imagine some really terrible things with the conditions she suffers. So what she witnesses has to be above that in order to challenge her and move her forward in the story, and also make her realize. That's not who she is, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and there's also, from what you've shared privately and personally and what is in the, the story, um, these uh, obsessive fixations on imagining uh, the worst possible outcomes, the most violent and graphic, um, um, often sexual or, or, or violent uh, imagery, um, is deeply disturbing. Um, it also feels like a very natural fit for comic books and graphic novels as a medium. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if that was liberating at all um, in expressing this side of, of your inner self. Is yeah, I would say that it, it adds a little bit of remove, you know, where it's more impressionistic at times. But also, you know, and if you... <laughs> It's hard to get a bunch of people to like drag cables and put up lights and have them do that. Um, and I think sometimes that might be, eh, I don't know, I've never done that, but like that might be too overwhelming. What I think also 
is interesting about comics is that you can dwell on a single image for as long as you want, right? And I found myself doing that as a kid, whether it was a panel I really loved or something beautiful or something really disturbing. Yeah. You know, something as simple as like, you know, Wolverine stabbing someone with his claws and being like, did that guy die? You yeah. know, like, I, and then you're looking through the book to find out if that person is dead and it's never referenced. And you're like, well, he, but he looks like he died here. Like yeah. someone would die yeah. if they were stabbed this way. Um, and you can sit there and stare at it for as long as you want and study it, um, which itself can be obsessive, right? Yeah. And then, but then it gets kind of burned into your mind in the same kind of way that these things um, can get burned into your mind in a bad way. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about um, what's going on. This is kind of a plot-related thing, but um, in the story, Luna has a high school guidance counselor named Dana. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Um, their relationship doesn't seem like a standard high school counselor and then student relationship. Um, and it escalates rather quickly when Dana gets involved in some you know, violent conspiracy type stuff in Luna's life. Um, I was a little um, perplexed by that relationship and I want to know if you could talk me through that. And I, I sensed maybe that there was some uh, allusion or allegory to your own relationship with uh, with mental health and psychotherapy and, and other... You know, I would say, like, I don't have a specific therapist who got, like, really involved in my life and crossed a bunch of ethical boundaries, but... Uh, and then stabbed someone in the neck in yeah, the basement. Yeah, then someone. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that um, the premise of the comic book, and I think this is, you know, something I've been thinking about for a long time, is that, you know, everybody's crazy, right? And that no one really has... Um, a, a stone pillar from which they stand upon always, that there's always something. Um, and so I wanted to take someone who is a, a guidance counselor and make them human as well and make them really flawed and really um, weak at times and then also um, bizarrely supportive in ways you wouldn't expect. Um, you know, I've had people in my life where you really look to them as someone who is a, a pillar of strength and then you find out things about them where they have these tremendous struggles or um, past experiences or, or erratic behaviors that come out and you just don't understand them. And so, you know, I wanted a character to be like that in the, in the book where you're like, oh, this is going to be your therapist. And then it's like, well, no. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think by the, by the end of, of the first arc, she's definitely in a – she's probably not going back to her job at the high school. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And in a way um – in a way, there's an interesting inversion where uh, the the formal objective relationship is that Dana is the counselor and is the adult and is the trained professional, and Luna's a student and a minor. And um, in a weird way, they experience a bunch of really messed up stuff together. And Luna ends up, unless I'm reading it wrong, seemingly being slightly more mentally resilient than Dana. And Dana ends up kind of almost uh, swallowed whole by... Yeah. Um, Luna's uh, both Luna's mental state and then the actual uh, events that happen to them together. Yeah, I think that Luna has. You're right. I think she has a better mental resiliency than Dana does because I think if anything, Dana is not. Um, she suppressed her stuff. She's had years of suppression of her own stuff to make herself an adult. So if anything, you know, the only reference I have is myself. But you know, it's somebody who is like, I'm fine. You know what I mean? I'm doing good. Let me help you. Right, and then if you're not dealing with some stuff underneath that, it can really overturn your life. In a in a way, is her pure O obsessive compulsive disorder her superpower? Yeah, in a way. I mean, we 
it helps me at least in my career on a practical level because we'll, you know, Chris and I will be able to write for hours on end. I can sit with something for a long time. Not as well now as I'm better medicated, so yeah. I can't. I can't. But I have sat and delivered scripts after writing overnight, you know, and and where it just didn't seem like that would happen. I know a lot of people do that, but um, the details of things I just won't let go. The formatting of screenplays I won't let go. Um, you know, Chris taught me about orphans on lines where it's one word underneath a line, right? And now I can't, can't have those in a screenplay. Uh, I can't have those in dialogue. It's like, well, he has to say it some way different because there's one word. And so if you see it, I told Chris that if you see an orphan word underneath sentences, that means I really, really like the sentence or the piece of dialogue. Just to be clear, you're talking about the actual like formatting of like in Courier in screenplay, New, like the if, sentence is so long that it went onto a second line. Yeah, exactly. So like if I wrote our interaction, all of your none of your lines would have orphans, even though no one here would know that. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's really helpful. <laughs> um. I want to talk a little bit more again about the, well, uh, so the whole story is called She Could Fly because Luna's obsessed with this mysterious woman that can actually fly um, in reality and it becomes kind of a media spectacle. Um, and then, uh, I, this happens pretty early in the story, so I don't know if this oh, is a spoiler alert, but she explodes graphically on live, tel on live news television. Um, and it feels like Luna changes there. Um, I had two thoughts and I want to run them by you and kind of see if they're pro both probably wrong. Um, one is the straightforward one, that this was someone that was at peace and could fly and was free and that she looked up to or fantasized about being like. Another one was that for a brief moment, everyone, every normal person on the street got a brief glimpse of the graphic violence that she was dealing with every day in her daily life and maybe she didn't feel very special anymore or that, that, that Thing that private uh, private torture was taken from her in some way? Are I, is there any truth in either of those or neither? I would say the, f the first one you said, which is that this person was free, right, and was flying and seemed to be liberated from everything. I think that that's what Luna transposes on this person that she has no idea the identity of, right? She has no idea who that person is. So it's something she's built in her head. That's the story she's telling herself about this person because it's the... In her head, she's made it the opposite of how she feels, right? And then when that person is gone, I think Luna feels like it's gone from, like this thing was taken from her or that she can't, she'll never have what that person had. And, you know, as she digs deeper, she finds somebody who is probably as troubled, if not more so, than her. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really um, significant, the family unit. I think in a lot of stories, in a lot of people's lives, family unit is a very important thing, um, an informative thing um, on our experience. So something that I thought was fascinating um, was how differently Luna uh, operates in her environment, in her world, in her home, relative to her parents and her grandmother. Um, and there's a almost like melancholic uh, obliviousness to um, Luna's parents, the, the characters. One example is um, the dad character's mom uh, appears after being seven years away, and I think he says like one surprised sentence. Oh, he actually chases her with a baseball bat, and then the second he realizes that she's back home, mm -hmm. it's like life resumes to perfect, nor like, uh, to perfect normalcy. Mm -hmm. um, 
what's going on? Like, what's going on with Luna's parents? And yeah. um, are they are they behaving that way as a defense mechanism? Are they? Uh, is it a generational shift? Right, um, right. What's going on? Mom, Dad, do you want to answer these questions? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I would say. Um, I think if anything, it's you want to create two people who love the main character but can not access what that character is going through internally because that character has decided to not share it, right? And so there is a there is a just there's an unawareness, right? Um, and I think that uh, that is mostly through the choice of the main character. That said, she's a minor, right? So um, there are things that can be seen exterior-wise, right? Like, I think the dad at one point says, like, she's getting good grades, you know? Because um, he's working, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, he's trying to keep the family together. Like, the mom has a job, too. Um, they're busy. They're also dealing with the grandmother. I think the grandmother arriving is a big, a big part of this, where it's like, they're dealing with this new person, this variable that's come back to the family and trying to figure out how that person fits in. There's a line in the comic book where the dad comes out to the breakfast table and he's like, how you doing today, Ma? And she's like, oh, I'm just waiting to die. That is literally from our life. My grandmother said that to my dad. And my dad just turned around and like went in the bedroom and was like, fuck. You know what I mean? Like, uh, And I still to this day don't know why she said that, but it was like, Maybe she was just waiting to die. Like, maybe we all are just waiting to die. Maybe she was just being more honest than all of us were ready to admit in the house. You yeah. know, like, I don't know what kind of clarity or fogginess she was under right. for those last years of her life. So um, it's like, is she feeling sorry for herself? Is, uh, is that what's clouding things? Is it, uh, is it she sees what's going on more than anybody else? Um, I think that, that that's a big question for those characters. And I, I think the family unit is... Um, you know, in flux. Because, at, you know, in the second issue, the, woman, the grandmother gets lost. Yeah. So the whole thing becomes about the grandmother, right? And so the kid is like, you know, kind of in the passenger seat while they're trying to figure out what to do with the grandmother. And, and yeah, sure, I experienced that a little bit, but it's just the way it was, you know what I mean? It's just when, when you get something like that dropped on your family, you really have to, to go through it. But I think there's also a, as we all do, there's a, there's a, a really strong desire to want everything to be okay, right? Yeah. We all do. Um, and it's really hard to admit that it's not without feeling indulgent, without feeling pessimistic or cynical. Um, but sometimes it's not okay, right? There's a moment um, between... Uh, Luna and her dad that um, rang very true to me about my relationship with my parents and then now that I'm a dad and you are as well um, there's a, kind of a super symmetry there and it was um, where Luna's dealing with this very heavy very violent, very um, turbulent inner life and that comes across very clearly in the story and then the dad takes her along to like one of his construction jobs or renovation right. jobs and she's like not looking where she's going and she like falls through the drywall and causes $6,000 of damage and he's like shit like mm -hmm. frustrated right like they're dealing with really different things but what rang true there was that um, the dad for as oblivious as he sometimes seems is like doing what he can do to 
both survive for himself and provide for his family. And um, there's like, a, there was, I don't know, a little bit of, again, it was sad, but it was also really deeply um, easy to empathize with that moment um, of him, almost like blue collar frustration of like, my damn daughter fell through the drywall. Right, yeah, it's like it, in a way, um, I, and I think those situations feel more like me as a dad. Yeah. You know, where I have a pretty anxious little boy who's the older one of our boys, and it's like, hey, let's do this thing that I know how to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they can flail about in that. Um, and, and yet, there's always the attempt, right? It's like, let's, hey, come see how I install air conditioners. Hey, let's go for a driving lesson. And those things can go horribly wrong, right? But it's the attempt to reach out that I think is the noble effort there. At least I want to tell myself that as a dad. Um, you know, when I was a kid, my dad tried to teach me basketball, and we put up a basketball pole, and we dug the hole in the ground and filled it with cement and raised the pole up, and then we practiced a bounce pass, and the first one I caught it in the nose. And I just started crying, and I went in the house. After a whole day of putting the basketball net up in the ground, and it was like, I'm sure my dad was like, I'm going to get in the car and drive away now. I'm going to leave. <laughs> and I feel that way with my son sometimes too, yeah. right? Where it's like, let's play baseball. And he's like, the glove's making my hand hot. And I'm like, no one is ever allowed to say that to another person. <laughs> and you just did to me and I am hurt. You know, but it's not about that. It's about like, let me help you. Let me, let me be a part of your life, even though we're so different. Because we're so different. There are, uh, switching gears a little bit, there are some... And maybe I was grasping at straws, but some really interesting, I don't know if they were Easter eggs or homages to other comic strips in the story, um, visual and otherwise. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Give those? Give me examples. Uh, so one that, like, I was, uh, and again, this I could be projecting, um, I was very uh, obsessed as a kid with Batman uh, and uh, Batman comics, and some of the most messed up ones involved the Scarecrow. Mm -hmm. um, one weird thing that I thought about this story was that um, in, a, in a weird way where a lot of modern superhero stories are about superheroes that are complex and gritty and have flaws, um, there aren't too many supervillain stories where you can empathize with the supervillain. And Luna's story almost feels like it could be like the Scarecrow origin story. <laughs> like she could become this yeah. deeply easy to empathize with villain that is uh, fixated on violence and and yeah i think um, you know luna luna's probably stronger than the scarecrow because she doesn't need the neurotoxin to true, scare the shit true. out of herself um the thing i was gonna say is though that uh, uh is a bill the physicist mm -hmm. gets put in the back of the truck they put a cowl on him uh and it's got like a sewed mouth and yeah. and eyes and i thought that might be like a scarecrow homage um, it was actually a reference to mission impossible oh one. man it's Fail, the same kind of mask test. they put on Tom Cruise. Yeah, I really went back to the artist and was like, it needs to look like the mask they put on Tom Cruise in Mission okay. Impossible. Um, There's no reason for that other than I like Mission Impossible. It's a good film. Yeah. Um, another one I thought was that that sticker on the back of the train window looked like a the the Watchmen. Um, yeah, no, I wasn't Rorschach's trying to do that, uh, but, but yeah, like that's, that kind of stuff though is what I, I, if anything, there's probably more movie references into the comic books just because I don't know, that's just so easy for me. Do you want to share a few? Well, the radio, the radio station that comes on with that wakes Dana up in the morning, the whole thing that the, the uh, DJ says is the first line of Ferris Bueller. 
because that's what the DJ does. He wakes up and that's awesome. Tells you that it's a beautiful day in Chicago with 78 no hair and all these things. So that's fantastic. I put that in there for no reason either, other than I like Ferris Bueller. That's what you can do when you're a writer. Right, it's like God, godlike powers. It. Yeah. Um, so something that uh, it seems like a fallacy of the mental care, mental health care professionals in the story, um, and something that you've talked about openly in your journey is that, um, like we said before, there's never one fix, right? Everybody expects there to be the one thing that works and there right. isn't ever that. And you've shared a variety of strategies that you've used um, to, again, process and, and adjust to who you are. Um, do you want to share some of those? I mean, you, you, you've talked a little bit about um, some of the spiritual uh, education that you've done. Um, medication, yeah. there's a whole variety of things. Yeah, I mean, Gardening, I mean, yeah. restoring finding, bicycles. Find, finding hobbies. I think also just, there's a thing in this, there's a therapy used in this type of OCD called extinction therapy, where you're just confronted over and over again with what you're afraid of. And um, in a way, I think I just went through that. I went through extinction therapy as a kid because I just went through it and to the point where I, and stop meaning anything, right? Where I was like, okay. Um, and then, you know, when it would bubble up again, you just kind of have to go through that extinction phase. Now, you know, when you have somebody that's actually helping you, like a therapist or something like that, they can guide you through those extinction therapies and they can say, um, you know, write it down, write the worst case scenario down and then record yourself reading it and then listen to that over and over and over again and rate how anxious it makes you. Um, and that's tough, but you know, by the end of, you know, a few weeks, it becomes like the Lord's Prayer, where it's like, yeah, and then, like, everybody hates me, and I'm put in jail, and for the rest of my life, and blah, 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 like, I'm hungry, I want a snack. You know what I mean? You get to that place with it, which is pretty impressive. Like, it's kind of like that thing of, you know, don't think of a, of, an, of a pink elephant, and then you think of a pink elephant, right? Like, the, that's kind of a, that's a difficult way to approach OCD, right? Where it's like, just don't think of it. Well, you can't, right? So yeah. it's like, well, think about it all the time and think about it even more than you do and make exhaust your brain so that it then goes away. Um, so that's been helpful. And then also, obviously, medication and the right treatment and therapy and all these different things. Um, creating those boundaries for yourself just in your life have become very important because for a long time I felt like, well, that's indulgent, you know, or whatever that is. You know, like that, I don't have time for that or, or um, that's making it, it's me being whiny, you know. Yeah. And uh, just just giving into that has been good to be like, oh, I need to do this right now. Yeah. And that's been good. Should we take qu questions from um, anyone that may have questions? Is that something sure. people are interested in doing? I mean, I, I could ask questions forever, but... I'll from see. anyone I have a personal relationship with or a tertiary personal relationship with or connection to? Dave Cadelia. Uh, yes, nice to meet you. <laughs> Hmm. I don't know. I'm trying to think of things. I think I, I held things that I wanted to get in. And then when we got, it's like a TV show, right? You get picked up to do more. So I was able to work them in later. Um, if anything, there, I was, I'm still more worried about things that I kept in. You know what I mean? Or like, was that, do I need that in there? Um, um, in terms of things I've left out, I always overwrite the outlines. You know, where it's like, there's no possible way I can get all of this in. 
Um, so some of that you're like, oh, it would have been cool to put that. I can't think of anything specifically. But it really is more things of like, oh, is that like a little too close to the bone? Should I have left that in? Um, but it's too late. So, so yeah. Yes. Um, so Sir in the blue uh, turtleneck. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Okay, so I have a really good idea for a human torch story. Where that torch, the original human torch, the one from the 30s, right? Yeah, he's the, yes, no, it's like, a, he's a, oh yeah, well we talked about this at a long time ago. But the new version of this I think would be great is because he's an android. But the problem with the android is that when he walks outside or is exposed to oxygen, he just lights on fire, which is a, a sad thing for someone to have to deal with. But I liked the idea of that guy coming back and trying to like reinvigorate his image, but Johnny Storm, who's like kind of the Casanova Fantastic Four member, um, is just too cool for school. And then the, this, this older Torch, who used to be a fireman and is like retired, you know, and is like, in, like older, uh, is just, just can't handle the younger kid. Um, I wanted to call it Flame Off. Uh, yeah. Do we have a question over there? Hey. Yeah. Um, what uh, part of your writing process was it that you find yourself surprising yourself with an outline of scripted? Hmm. I would say that, well, the script, the formatting of the script is completely different. Right? I write it in Microsoft Word, which is super weird. Um, there are some people who write comic book scripts and it's just a, it looks like a screenplay and they just give it to the artist. I, I have trouble doing that because I, again, I overwrite. So then I feel like I would leave the artist going, I don't know what to actually put in there. Um, I think that um, with this, it's like less is more, like in the writing of this, the script. Um, I also find that the more invested I am in an issue, which is a lot usually like the longer the script is because it's like a 32 page script. But if I turn one in that's 47 pages, I'm like, wow, I really wanted to get a lot of detail in there. But if I turn one in for a 32 page script and it's 32 pages, I was clearly like, well, this is pretty straightforward. Like just try to draw this. Um, and so there's a lot of trusting the artist. And you know, Martin Morazzo who created this book with me, I wish he could be here. He lives in Argentina. It's like. The guy feels like a better director than I can ever hope to be because you give him a description of what it looks like and then he finds the best, he really, he places the camera, right? And then he fleshes that out and, and if he adjusts it, he's like, hey, is it cool that I moved this over here or showed a little bit less information here or broke this into two panels? And it's like, every time it's like, yes, right? So there's a lot of deferment to, the artist feels like the director in a way, right? And so, um, as a writer in, in TV or film, you spend a lot of time pissed off at the director. And in this, you really rely, you're like, oh, that looks way better. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, so trusting the, trusting the artist more in the script has been big for me. So it's like page one, panel one, right? Like page one, or you know, five panels, panel one, small panel, this, right? Dialogue, this. And like I said, three lines usually you can fit unless you really want to be crazy. Right, or half splash, splash page, this, you know, double spread, here's what it is, right? And you have to get the double, sp uh, double spread numbers right, right? Because uh, it's not one and two, 
So you can't have like page 17 and 18. That's not a double spread. You have to do page uh, 18 and 19, 19 because yeah. page one is always on the inside. It's the second page in the comic book. So I got that wrong a couple times, you know. A writer for uh, um, Halt and Catch Fire who's on our new show, Zach Whedon, also writes for comic books and he talks about how difficult it is because you're trying to write for the page flip, right? And it's a different, it's a different feel from the last panel on this page to what you're seeing over here because your eye just has to move to the top as opposed to, oh, what's going to happen? I'm going to flip the page and it's like, a, it's like a bigger reveal even though it's a small motor change in your body. Yeah. I think about the details a lot, I guess. It's fantastic. I mean... Yeah. I imagine you actually laying it out and, uh, and like writing. I can't. On I don't lay it out pages. like just because then I'll just make myself feel bad of how yeah. bad I can draw. But yeah. yeah, I really try to visualize it as much as possible. Fantastic. Any other questions? Yes. Early on, was there anything the artist did that surprised you and made you decide to do something? Um. Yeah, I would say so. I think he. I mean, when you see the characters for the first time, right, it feels like casting, where you're like, I have this idea. And then you see it, and you go, oh, well, that's interesting. And then you, you change to that. You know, I think that um, some of the color schemes he brought to it uh, were interesting. It's like simple details, too, of like, Martine likes to show a lot of people's upper teeth. Where they actually, and our editor, Karen Berger, Berger, was like, can you pull that back a little bit? We don't see so many people's upper teeth. It's creeping me out. Um, it is a little aggressive. Yeah, but I like think it's like, in a it's like way. used to effect where it's like, oh, this is like a good upper teeth moment. <laughs> you know, like uh, that kind of thing is, is pretty cool. And then the colorist is a different person. So the colorist comes in and they might color it wrong, where wrong meaning like they didn't catch that it was day. Right, or they didn't catch that it was stormy, and it's like you. Then you get this page back that's this beautiful sunset image, and you're like, "Well, we can't change this." You know, like I think in the book, there's a flashback, and Keto is described as having in, originally like a yellow dress with blue flowers, and the colorist went in and made it a pink dress with purple flowers, and it looked incredible. So we just changed it, right? And it was just so we just changed the dialogue. Yeah, that kind of stuff is great. It's just when you see it, I mean, you know. You see it, you change it. Yeah, yeah, you're like, well, that's better. Yeah. Yes. I did have a say, which was really nice. Karen Berger, who's the editor of this, all of her books are incredible, by the way. Like, she has this label within Dark Horse, and her first job was when she was 21 at DC in I think the early 70s. And she worked up from an office assistant to the person who created the Vertigo label and discovered Neil Gaiman and all of these people and Why the Last Man, all these things. And she's, you know, she's, she's spun off and she's doing her own boutique label now. So she, I mean, she the well of artists she knows and, you know, who's affordable and who's available. Um, she brought uh, several artists to the table and we, we looked at their work and decided what would fit the book best and who was available. And, and then we, you know, we met Martine, and it was it was great. And he, we asked him to do some character sketches, and it was it was perfect. So I was, it's been really nice for Karen to include me in the process. It's been awesome. Any others? Um, one of the last questions I wanted to ask is, what's next for you? Are you going to keep uh, pursuing this medium and uh, learning? <laughs> okay. Uh, no, well, there's there's five issues, five more issues of She Could Fly that start coming out on April 10th, okay, which is my dad's birthday. 
So yeah, I remember that. Happy birthday. Uh, I timed that just right. Um, those are 22 pages each, but there are five of them. And then uh, hopefully we'll get to keep going. I have another series that'll come out in the fall called Everything with Karen as well. I'm going to bring back The Mask for Dark Horse, the thing that scared me when I was a kid. Yeah. That's going to come back. And then uh, I have a very tiny, uh, my first Marvel work, which is a great like full circle to when I was a kid, is I'm doing a 10-page story about Doctor Doom. Cool. Which is in an anthology series that I just finished up. So I'm excited to see what that's like. Uh, I think we all are very excited (laughs) to see what that's like. Um, I don't know if there's any other, uh, any, I, I don't even know what time it is. Has it been like three hours? The store or closed it? to half hour. Oh man, we're all dead. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I also wanted to say that um, in the vein that we've all um, over the last several years, I think learned to great effect that um, representation matters in media, that your openness about mental health is tremendously powerful and uh, I think is uh, very brave, and I think um, I can imagine the young Chris or Nick or any of you uh, reading She Could Fly and being very touched and inspired by your story and not feeling so alone if they're dealing with something similar. So thank I you so. for... That'd be awesome. Thank yeah. you for what you've done. Thank you for coming up here. Awesome. Everyone, can you give him a round of applause? <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.